are listening to The Cooler Ring, a podcast made for manufacturing marketers. Here are Carmen Perry and Jeff White. Welcome to The Cooler Ring. My name is Jeff White. Joining me today is Carmen Perry. Carmen, how are you doing? I am doing fantastic, Jeff. And you? I'm doing really well. I'm uh, really excited about the guest we have lined up today. He's got a very interesting perspective on a subject that you and I really enjoy talking about or arguing about. <laughs> arguing about. Well, that's why I think it's a topic that's almost designed for arguing. Um, yeah, we're hoping to make today's episode, folks, all about all about pricing, and and more specifically, um, uh, the pricing dynamics that are at play in a, in a complex B two B sales. So let's uh, let's just dive right in, Jeff. Introduce our guest, please. Absolutely. So joining us today is JD Dillon, James Dillon, goes by JD. VP of Marketing and Pricing at Enphase Energy, joining us all the way from the other side of the continent. Welcome to the Gula Ring, JD. Great to be here, gentlemen. Now, folks, what you don't know is that we're recording this fairly early in the morning, and it's early uh, enough um, on the on the East, East Coast. Coast that I'm barely awake, and and JD is joining us from the West Coast. So, and. Uh, heretofore on-scene level of dedication brought to the cooler ring. Danny, <laughs> uh, great to be chatting with you. Um, please, uh, if you will, uh, tell our listeners just a bit about yourself. You bet. So uh, I uh, went to the United States Military Academy at West Point, and uh, after my, my studying engineering there, and after my time in the Army, I started at a, a company called Cypress Semiconductor, and the marketing role there, a technical marketing role, a product marketing engineer. Uh, the, the initials were PME, and of course, and everybody jokes about their own job, and we called it so, pretty much everything. And uh, as my time evolved there, I touched every part of marketing, but I honed in on pricing because I found it the most intellectually stimulating and far and away the most impactful job, in my opinion, in the world. Honestly, that sounds a little bit uh, a little bit overblown, but it's true. And then since then, I've, I, I established structure at, at Cypress. I moved on to a company called OCZ Storage, where I did also focused on pricing. And then a small startup where I did pricing and done some consulting gigs along the way. And now I'm at Enphase Energy. And I spend most of my time on pricing. Now I'm evolving a bit to more pure marketing, but uh, pricing's a, a passion. I'm, I'm in the pre- professional pricing society. Who knew there was such a thing? <laughs> I, I love pricing being described as the most impactful area uh, in business. I, I just, because frankly, you know, I've often said that, that here at Cooler, we're really, we're, we're, we're on a mission for people to, um, uh, really give the same level of importance that um, they give to to product development um, and R&D and production efficiencies, to give that same level of import to the marketing and sales function, that you can unlock hidden value in what you make um, by, by concentrating on how it's marketed and how it's sold. And so much of that, of course, is about how it's priced. So when you say it, it, you can deliver the most value via pricing of anything in the enterprise, just by definition, you're agreeing with me, JD. So I like you already. <laughs> I, I like to be liked. <laughs> um, uh, what? All right. So you've been in that at this pricing gig for a while. What's the 
what's the one, if you had to say the biggest thing that people miss, the blind spot that people have about pricing, what is it? The simplistic approach to pricing. So I'll give you a couple of examples. In many companies, pricing reports to finance. So how do you come up with a price? Well, you figure out what, what are the cogs, how, how much it costs to make the widget, whatever it is. And then you say to yourself, you know what? Uh, 50% is good margin. I just tack on 1.5 times. And that's, uh, and that's missing it. If you're in the sales function, you say, hey, what do I need to close the deal? So that's competition-based pricing. Uh, or, or excuse me, what, what the customer's willingness to pay base pricing. Uh, someone, some people say, well, we need to be, particularly in a more consumer bent, would say, yeah, we need to be more or less in the competition. So that's a third way. So there's cost plus, there's uh, willingness to pay for the customer, and then there's the competitive base. And then the fourth is the most evolved, and that's value-based. But if you got a value, you got a value against what? And that's generally we use back to competition. So there's four different ways to do pricing, and so many folks see this as a simplistic uh, one of the four. It's kind of like the old adage of you go up to touch an elephant, you touch the side, you think it's a wall, you touch the tail, you think it's a snake, etc. And uh, it's much more complex than that. Well. Talk to me some more. Uh, what? What? Uh, so you're saying uh, people usually feel that they need to just use one of these four approaches, and, and that's it. That's all. And or you're saying they only know one of those approaches. Yeah. Or, or are you saying there's a magical fifth way that you're about to reveal on this podcast for the first time? <laughs> wow. No magical fifth way. The answer is you do all four. But the point is, if you look at one but not the others, uh, you will either overprice or underprice. A one of my favorite examples is there was a product when uh, when I was first starting out uh, in the semiconductor world that sold for, and it was a it was a chip, it was a computer chip, and it sold for the average price at the time was twenty seven dollars and fifty cents. And it cost us uh, 85 cents to make. And if we went in with a cost plus mindset, there's no way we would have unlocked all that value. So if finance had been setting the price, they would have totally underpriced the product. And then on the flip side, this company that I'm at now, uh, there, there was a time, and this is this is open open information if you go on the internet you could search around where there was uh deals that the company took there was negative margin because that's what the company needed to to, uh, make the deal okay so that's not even looking at the cost and doing what we needed to grow that was a customer's willingness to pay so those are two bookend examples where you look uh, in one direction at the price whereas if you look at all four of them you would have done uh, done something a little different. If we go back to the the first example, um, you know, obviously, if you'd done cost plus on that, you know, you would have had a less than two dollar chip. Uh, what what impact does pricing that 
at, uh, you know, what was it, $28. What impact does that have on the perception of the product itself? Well, the, the classic, it's, the classic example is wine um, in the consumer world, uh, but it oftentimes higher price can can uh, positively impact the product, the marketing message. So if you look at the four components, price is one of the classic MBA course. You have product, promotion, place, and price. And price can absolutely go to wine and you may buy wine for uh, – $28 and you say, oh, this is better wine than the $12 wine. Well, it's, it's the same grapes. Or uh, another great example is high-end luxury goods. But uh, the same is true in, in actual B2B because a lot of folks listening are, are B2B on this, on, on this call likely. And, and they say, wow, you know, I, I'm dealing with a purchasing organization that, that looks past that. Well, you know what? They're still humans. And humans make decisions, not corporations. And if people perceive the value, then the value is often there. Well, and all value is perceived, right? I mean, um, sure. and, and you're, I, I think you're, you're, you're quite right. Um, people still buy emotionally. There's this kind of this, one of the biggest, I think, problems or, or challenges for for uh, for marketers is that there's this sense that people are uber rational when they're operating on behalf of their business um, or, or their employer but then they're somehow um, uh, frivolous and be and, and able to be uh, uh, impacted by marketing uh, in a much different way in their consumer lives um, like there's just that they, they somehow have these two switches and they just switch them on and off on Monday morning and Friday night. And it's just not the case, you know? Um, I, I, so I, I, I really see, see and, and, and understand what you're, what you're saying there. I wonder when it comes to, um, I guess so many salespeople, um, you know, in that classic marketer versus salesperson conversation, debate, discussion, argument, whatever we want to call it, where basically uh, it comes down to the salesperson saying, well, the problem is, is that the price is just too much. So the reason we're losing on all these deals, the reason our close rate is what it is, is because we're just priced too high. It's just this simplistic view uh, of, of, of that. And, and I think marketers often at that point struggle with um, uh, a conversation because with the salespeople because they're not the ones that are kind of in that line of fire, if you will. What would you say to those marketers who are finding themselves in that discussion with a sales organization where it seems like it's all coming down to this simplistic view of, of price? So I'd say there's, uh, there's three simple approaches. Uh, simple is, a, I guess, probably the wrong word. There are three relatively straightforward in my opinion, approaches. The first one is I try to <laughs> salespeople, if any salespeople that I've worked with are listening to this or probably will uh, throw a flag on this, but <laughs> I try to empathize with the salesperson. And a, a great way to approach it is, yes, that may be true. The price may be off. Let's first walk through three other ideas 
on how we can win the sale or improve uh, take rate or wh whatever the, the dynamic that you're discussing is. What are three other ways that maybe we can approach it? Uh, I, th that idea, the very, very simple idea came to me from uh, uh, Madhavan, a, a friend of mine who's at uh, Simon Kucher and Partners, a great pricing consultancy. And, and if you go through, oftentimes by the time you get to that third idea, uh, you forgot about the price. So that is one approach. The second one is to remove services. And you say to yourself, well, I sell widgets. I mean, it's not a service. Well, but do you have a warranty? Do you have a, a, a line, a, a support line? Do you have a dedicated apps engineer, perhaps, that um, maybe you will tell the customer, you know what? We can't have a dedicated apps engineer, but if you want the product at at $18 or $1.20, whatever the number is, instead of 20% higher, we can absolutely do that, but you'll no longer have a dedicated support engineer. Then the customer will go, whoa, 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 I need that. Or the customer will say, great, well, you just learned something right there. Perhaps your services aren't as valuable as you thought. So that's the second thing. The first is do the three choices. The second one is, is pull on services sometimes. Uh, basically, uh, lower your cost to serve for the product. And then the third idea is to uh, focus on the next best alternative. I don't actually call it competition because the next best alternative can be not purchasing the product. Well, that's not competition. That's just not buying. Or the next best alternative could be a different way to solve the problem that you're trying to solve. So uh, spending time on the next best alternative, and oftentimes after that conversation happens, you realize I, I actually had a, a, a gentleman one time we were selling into a, a chip into a cell phone, and he would say, got to be lower, got to be lower, got to be lower. And I finally said, so what, what, what is the next best alternative? He says, well, you can't use anything else. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden, yeah, the I was like, are, are you serious? And he says, yep. He can't. He has to use us. We're the only one that fits on the board. I'm like, well, and it doesn't mean you should lord it over them, but geez, it changes the dynamic now, doesn't it? <laughs> changes the dynamic incredibly. Um, a guy that I worked with also likes to use the process of anchoring against certainty. So what if, uh, you know, in a, in a complex sale where you're maybe, you know, the, the outcome of what's being purchased is uncertain, um, uh, you know, if often in certain terms of selling professional services, that could be the case. Um, and the and the question would be to then to anchor whatever the price is against. Well, what is it worth if we guaranteed an outcome? If that could if that could be done, um, and and all uncertainty was removed from the equation, what is that worth? And then comparing the, those two prices oftentimes puts puts it into some favorable perspective, uh, which is fantastic because you brought up a fourth. I, I, I tend to like to do things in threes. Uh, it's the ex-military in me, but uh, you brought up a fourth, which is to change uh, the unit of measure of a sale. Now, this is a lot harder to do. You're not going to do this tactically. This is a company-changing event. I'll give you an example. Everyone knows software as a service, but uh, what about outcome-based pricing? Um, uh, Michelin, I went to a pricing conference with Michelin, a, a, a gentleman 
from Michelin, the tire company. And he said uh, they were selling not uh, airplane tires. And they weren't selling by the tire, they were selling by the landing. So every landing the plane made, because of, I mean, just logic tells you that's where all the wear and tear is on the tire of a plane. Every landing the plane made is what they got paid for, not the tires. So if they could extend to more landings, i.e. higher quality tires, Michelin would make more. Fewer landings, they'd make less. And of course, safety trumps everything, so that's a, a non-negotiable part of the sale. But fascinating dynamic. And I find, I mean, it's almost like they're, they're easier to talk about in theory than they are in practice. I mean, um, you know, someplace along the way, somebody has to track how many landings on those <laughs> tires and charge it back, right? It. Um, yeah, there's some some complexity in, in pulling that off. Well, in that case, I mean, safety regulations, that one's regulatory built in. Um, every aspect of, of air travel. Now, that happens to be a specific industry, uh, but the dynamic exists elsewhere, too. And anything where safety is involved, records are usually pretty meticulous. Um, there's other examples you can do that if you're selling uh, semiconductor equipment uptime. I mean, every company keeps uh, OEE is the, is the, the term. Uh, I frankly can't remember what it, what it stands for. It's how often a, a piece of equipment is up. Well, you can track uptime. And that's, again, that's a relatively well-known metric. So almost every industry has metrics. We're so metric driven these days, everything from sports teams to uh, business, that it, it is possible. You're listening to The Cooler Ring, conversations on manufacturing marketing. Don't forget to subscribe now at coolapartners.com slash thecoolering. That's K-U-L-A partners.com slash thecoolering. It's a, I want to go back to this customer willingness to pay um, uh, method of, of, of pricing. Only because I, you know, uh, trying to assess a customer's willingness to pay of course, has a lot to do with the positioning and framing of the pricing uh, options that we've just talked about. So I guess uh, let's talk through that a, a little bit further. Do you have any uh, uh, tips for people who are uh, endeavoring to, um, I guess, how do you unearth that? How would you, how would you tell people, the, you know, how do they determine the customer's willingness to pay beyond simply uh, listening to what the sales folks are saying they're hearing? So there's no substitute for primary research, and I, I am not a consultant, nor do I pretend to be, but I, 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 I don't mean to advertise consultancies, but having a consultant do it is very, very useful because that's a third party. So uh, there are a lot of good firms that are experts at it where they can ask and, and not enter into the negotiation because one of the... The important part is you don't want to have a willingness to pay and negotiation taint that. So if you call up your largest customer, talk to the purchasing agent and say, how much would you be willing to pay for this new product? Well, they just, negotiation just kicked in. <laughs> so that doesn't work at all. Um, I'll, I will give you 
a very specific example of something that I did uh, nine months ago. So I found 10 customers, randomly I might add, and I called them up, me personally. And I said a meet with them and they were kind of surprised to be called up by a, a vice president at a company. And how I asked the question is the most important thing. And so there's, there's two ways to ask that question. One, I said, well, we're looking at doing it. Uh, I explained the program. We're looking at providing upgrades to your uh, microinverters. And, uh, and I said, what would be a reasonable price in your opinion? And of the, the 10 that I called, nine answered. One refused to answer in an odd twist. But the, uh, the other nine, uh, they gave answers. And then they, I said, why is that? And they explained why. And then I said, what would you find to be a prohibitively expensive price? So asking it that way, then bracketed from reasonable to prohibitively expensive. And then I said, the third question is, if I sold it to you for, and I gave the whatever they said as reasonable, what would be your likelihood to purchase? So there are science on this, but with those questions, number one, the most important thing is the why, because then you can analyze the heck out of that. Number two, if their likelihood to purchase on a scale of one to 10 is an eight, that's a different answer than a two. And so you can analyze that. And frankly, I didn't go crazy. I only got nine and I did it via interview, not via survey. And it immediately got us enough information to know whether it's directionally correct. And did you find a lot of um, somewhat consistency or were the results um, fairly tightly grouped, I guess, with the question? There was one that was skewed way high, two that were skewed way low, and I could quickly tell that they were uh, cheapskates. <laughs> um, and then I just threw them out. Yeah. And the other ones were all rounding error to each other. Yeah. So a bit of a bell curve emerged uh, pretty yeah. quickly, even within the nine. Yeah. But it was, it, it was a bell curve, but it was spiked. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And, and it totally colored the direction that we were headed. Um, I knew exactly which way to go from that point. Very interesting. What what would you, I mean, I'm sure you've seen a lot of the same CEB and Gardner research that's been out um, around the increasing size of the buying committee. And, you know, so you're getting people from all kinds of different depart or departments within an organization, at least having some form of say over an actual sale. How do you, as a salesperson, as a marketer, um, sell into that from a pricing perspective? Or does it change the pricing uh, conversation as the, as the buying group increases? So I very carefully, <laughs> um, if, if you go back to the previous example, what I was giving you was 10 different customers. But let's change that answer I gave on the willingness to pay to your question right there. What if I asked 10 different humans at the same customer? The problem you run into is lowest common denominator. 
You've got the one who doesn't care about the price, the two cheapskates, and the ones in the middle. But as an organization, they will end up going to the lowest common denominator if you try to please the two cheapskates. Um, that's the problem that you just described. And the answer is uh, kind of sales 101, who's the decision maker? And if the true decision maker or a person with strong veto is one of the two at the lower end of the bell curve that I described, then therein lies the discipline of pricing. Walk. If the person is somewhere in the bell curve, then sell it at the bell curve price and uh, and just be willing to deal with the two people at the low end. But that that's the that's the rub, figuring out whether or not the true decision maker is and whether or not someone has the veto and having the discipline to walk. I think that's good advice. And I, I, I've kind of, as Jeff brought this, uh, this up, I, I want to go back to something that you said earlier around um, the, 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 next, uh, the next alternative. Um, and, 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 using, and, and you acknowledge at that point, sometimes that could be actually buying nothing or doing nothing which is in fact what Gartner has found, that as the buying group has increased in size, their propensity to buy nothing goes up. <laughs> uh, the more people that are making the decision, uh, the more likely, likely it is their decision is not to buy. Um, in fairness, it probably is in some cases a much safer decision than an expensive purchase. Um, <sighs> wow. I, I, I tell you what, that's fascinating because – I, see, this is why I love these conversations. I just learned something. I, I hadn't thought about it exactly the way you said, but you're absolutely right. It's harder to get it. I mean, for goodness sakes, uh, look at government. <laughs> it's hard to make decisions. Hmm. The more people you involve, the harder it is to make a decision. So the default is no decision. That is great. Yeah. Anyway, ask your question. That was a wonderful. Thanks. I, I just learned a lot. <laughs> I don't even know if I had a question. I was just trying to square these two uh, uh, these two dynamics. You know, like uh, you know, if you're using uh, you know, geez, Mister Customer, let's talk about my price and compare it against the option of doing nothing. You know, that can be uh, a little bit more fearful uh, or fear-inducing, I should say, if the likelihood of them doing nothing is considerably higher. And and that's where not being desperate is so important. A, a friend of mine years and years ago taught me, when I, when I first started in marketing, he was a seasoned salesperson. He drove a Cadillac. He was a little bit slick. Uh, but he taught me, a, one lesson he taught me was, sometimes you have to uh, lose the sale to win the customer. And uh, sometimes it's not the right deal. For either of you, ooh, that's hard to swallow for most people. <laughs> mm. No, that's when you have, um, you know, the, the 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 real power in a sale uh, dynamic is in the um, is is in the the ability to walk away. You're quite right. If you don't have that, or you're not willing to exercise that, then um, you're on the uh, you're on the fast uh, fast train to, to to the bottom, really. Yeah. Um, this has been an interesting conversation. Uh, uh, the psychology of pricing is, uh, is, is, 
just uh, I mean, it, there, there's so many layers to it. Um, when we're talking about um, a, a, again a complex B two B sale where there's a mm-hmm. um, uh, RFP uh, process that's probably at play, an extensive proposal, you know, a lot of moving parts within it. Um, I know that some of the I was reading some of your uh, articles in the lead up to uh, to this interview. And I think you were giving some pretty good advice around how to kind of um, mix and match or take different pricing approaches within that kind of environment. I would like to to maybe touch on that now as we uh, as we turn our uh, uh, eyes towards wrapping up the podcast in the next little while. Certainly. So I believe the the end all is value based pricing, and to do the complex sale when you have multiple different influences, all of whom have multiple different motivations. If you can think in terms of the customer's P&L, so one of the things I did at one of my companies was an economic value calculator. And if you take the company's P&L and say, how can I drive value for the customer? Well, I can either they can charge more for their product or service as a result of my product or service. So they can charge more, they can sell more, they can get to market faster, hence pull in their revenue stream. They can decrease their COGS so they can lower their, often it's bill of materials, as a result of me, they they can buy me and not have to buy others, for example. So you you eliminate uh, waste for them uh, to lower the cogs or you can lower their opex uh, less service calls less uh, service calls is often cogs but um, less uh, engineering time less development time a shorter development cycle so if you can think in terms of the customer's PL, that is how i bring it all together i think um I think that's it's fantastic advice. I think it's something that people should really be aiming towards. I, I also can't help but imagine that there are a number of um, salespeople that could listen to that and think that it uh, sounds like a tall order. I don't know if they're used to having conversations at that level. Well, a, a salesperson will definitely, that this is what makes it a complex sale, probably need to bring in multiple different folks from your company to make that sale. Uh, I, no salesperson, no human is capable of doing all of those things at once. You might bring in the operations person who does your uh, your supply chain and your technical design engineer who developed the product to try to make the sale with you. You can't do it alone. It's not the, the days of knocking on the doors and closing, selling steak knives. That, that's one. And I like that idea if the sales uh, organization can transition um, that value identification process, if you will, transition that outside of the sales process and, and, and operationalize it to an extent. Um, uh, get the operational level folks um, uh, both on, on, on the prospect side and on the sales, uh, on the selling organization side, dealing with each other. Uh, I, I find if, if, if that can start happening, um, all of a sudden that sales uh, function gets to be a, a, a heck of a lot easier. And, and frankly, most of the 
seasoned salespeople I know, it's also more fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Seriously. It makes the job a little more enjoyably enjoyable. It's more dynamic. Um, it makes work more enjoyable. And if it's more enjoyable, you'll probably do better. Yeah. And, and they're also learning things by bringing in all of those people with that, those different degrees of expertise about what they sell mm. in the process. Yeah. Wonderful point. Well, JD, uh, what our listeners don't know is that um, we've managed at least on two or three occasions throughout this podcast to get you to list things in even numbers rather than in odd numbers. <laughs> and we started uh, this conversation before the recording talking about uh, the weird uh, tick that we both share uh, for never setting an alarm for an even time of, of day. <laughs> Always doing things in odd numbers. So I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like we've we've like shifted a timeline or something like we've gone from the Berenstein to the Berenstain or what have you timeline. I don't know. I mean, it, the, the whole world is going to change as a result of this. I think. And, and it's a, it's an example of Canada and America working together. Wow. Look at that. <laughs> you know, if we can just anything that we can do to bring these two nations closer together, we're happy to be a part. Of it. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, JD, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us today. Any uh, last parting words of advice before we sign off? Wow, that's a lot of pressure. So the uh, parting words of, uh, of advice is give pricing a little bit more time and effort. Um, what what struck me when I first started is it was a semiconductor company, and, I, and I'd sit and I'd listen to the engineers uh Talk about going from 99.1% yield up to 99.8%. And there'd be a long meeting and lots of ideas. And then I'd get on the phone with the sales guy and he'd say, let's drop the price by five bucks. I'd be like, geez. I I mean, that's where it's impactful. You can make your – a junior pricing person – can make their salary on one day with one deal. And uh, there's so much money to be made with good, solid pricing. It's fantastic advice to give, uh, give pricing the, the time and attention it deserves. Don't, don't, uh, I guess don't hesitate to peel back those, those layers a bit and understand that there's some complexity under the hood. Uh, it's not just, uh, just a simple one and done conversation. I think that's great advice, JD. Thank you so My much pleasure, for taking the time to chat. It's uh, it's been fantastic, and uh, we look forward to reconnecting with you soon. Can't wait. Have a good one. Thank that's you. Thanks for listening to the Cooler Ring with Carmen Perry and Jeff White. Don't miss a single manufacturing marketing insight. Subscribe now at coolapartners.com slash the cooler ring. That's K-U-L-A partners.com slash the cooler ring.